0: I don't know what's next, give me a second. Kathy's out of town, and so happened to do everything. So, no, really? I mean, I she's like, you know, we take turns, and sometimes she does things, and sometimes I do things, and so well, I, oh, I'm preaching now. The one thing, you have one job. I'm glad you all laugh at me. Oh, you're laughing, I'm not laughing. <laughs> uh, we started three weeks ago in the Hosea chapter one. And we moved to Hosea chapter 11. And then last week we moved to Isaiah chapter one. And now we're gonna be in Isaiah chapter five today. And I'm gonna bounce around a little bit. We're gonna be in Luke for a moment today. And we're gonna be in Hebrews for a moment today. And I hope it all ties together at the end of this sermon Um, We're talking about joy, and that we can find joy through doing the work of justice. And sometimes doing the work of justice doesn't feel joyful, it feels like work. And it's a little bit scary sometimes. But we do it because we have faith. When God calls us to do something, we do it, and we just have to trust. We just have to trust. And I need you to understand this very clearly. Faith and doubt go hand in hand. You cannot have faith without doubt. Paul Tillich, one of my all-time favorite theologians, says that doubt is not the lack of faith. Certainty is. So, for example, I am 100% certain that if I stood on this chair, it would hold me. I have no doubt, it takes very little faith at all, if any, for me to stand on this because I know it's going to hold me. But if I were gonna stand on this kneeling rail here, I'm just not sure. I think it would hold me, but I'm not 100% confident. It's going to take faith that it would hold me. Does that make sense? And so when we're called to do something like, do the work of justice, where we have to give up some of ourselves for the common good, in the process of doing that, we have to trust that God is going to take care of us. That it's going to be okay. But there's always a little bit in the back of our minds, I think, there's like, yeah, but what if? And that's okay. Because what Jesus said is if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, and I think that that little bit of faith is not incredibly difficult. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. This is a song um, that he wrote. It's more of a parable, but we call it the song of the vineyard. Because well, you'll see. It starts off and it's really pretty and then it gets kind of rough and then it gets bad and then we understand what God's heart is. And why, when we're not doing what God's heart is about, God gets frustrated and disappointed. And the thing that I love about the prophets is we get to see the emotion that God has around things that are important. Let me sing for my loved one a love song for his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it cleared away its stones, planted it with excellent vines, built a tower inside it, and dug out a wine vat in it. He expected it to grow good grapes, but it grew wild grapes. So now, you who live in Jerusalem, you people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. It's an invitation for them to judge themselves. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done for it? When I expected it to grow good grapes, why did it grow rotten grapes? Now let me tell you what I'm doing with my vineyard. I'm removing its hedge so that it will be destroyed. I'm breaking down its walls so that it will be trampled. I'll turn it into a ruin. It won't be pruned or hoed, and thorns and thistles will grow up. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord of heavenly forces is the house of Israel and the people of Judah are the plantings in which God delighted. God expected justice, but there was bloodshed. Righteousness, but there was a cry of distress. The word of God, the people of God, may we speak of God. May God give us wisdom and courage for interpretation. May God give us wisdom and courage to apply the truth. For our lives. God was expecting what? What does Isaiah's song in the vineyard say that God was expecting from Israel and Judah, the people that God had led out of slavery across the desert and into the Holy Land, the land flowing with milk and honey, a fertile valley that was given to them where they could plant and grow. They were to be the city on the hill whose branches extended out across the mountain so that other people could come and sit in the shade and receive the blessings of being with the people that had been led across the desert. What God expected of them was justice. But what was given was bloodshed. What God expected of them was righteousness. But what happened was there was a cry of distress, not from Israel and Judah, but from their neighbors. We, the readers, are asked to judge between God and the people. We should be really careful. God makes his taste. And says, I did all these things for my vineyard. I found fertile land. I cleared it of rocks. I planted vines. I dug down deep so the water could get to them easily. I made sure irrigation was there. I put a tower in the middle where the wine press was, and I dug a pit for the juice to flow into so we could ferment the juice into wine. I put a hedge around it to make sure the pigs and goats and other animals wouldn't get in couldn't just easily get in and steal the grapes, but all it produced was sour and rotten fruit. So you tell me, God says, who was in the wrong? If we were Israel or Judah, we would feel the cut. This song, this oracle, this statement of God would cut our souls. Jesus says the word of God has the power to come between bone and soul. That's why we don't like the prophets. You know, I talked last week about John Wesley's idea of personal piety leading to social holiness. And sometimes we focus mostly on the personal side of things, and we'll take a prophecy like Isaiah and try to make it about an individual. Or everybody's favorite verse to write in a graduation card, right? Jeremiah 29:11. Where we write that verse to try to encourage graduates. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, he declares the Lord, the plans. things down and try to encourage that individual, but really, Jeremiah, we'll find out next month was prophesying to the whole people, to a nation, not to individuals. Isaiah is prophesying to an entire nation, not to a specific individual, but what is a nation made up of? Individuals. So when we hear these words, we have to wonder, which side are we on? Are we the grapes that are the produce? Are we the vine that's producing the grapes? Because we know for sure we're not the vine owner, right? Or maybe we're the soil. It's pretty obvious that the people of God, which includes us now, we've been grafted into this vine. The people of God are the vine. So now we have to ask ourselves, what are we producing? our personal piety leading to social holiness. And before we get excited and start talking about, well, Ross, you know, that's the God of the Old Testament, let me read to you the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I came to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it was already ablaze. Feeling comfortable now? I came to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it was already ablaze. I have a baptism I must experience, how I am distressed until it is complete. Do you think I have come to bring peace to earth? We do, right? No, I tell you I have come instead to bring division. From now on, a household of five will be divided three against two and two against three. Father will square off against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, and mother in law against daughter in law, and daughter in law against mother in law. That one's easy to imagine. Jesus also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud forming in the west, you immediately say, it's going to rain, and indeed, it does. And when a south wind blows, you say, a heat wave is coming, and it does. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret conditions on earth and in the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret the present time? And why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? That also is the word of God. Jesus is this weird guy. God is this weird deity that is full of love and compassion and walks into a room where people are afraid and says, peace be with you, my peace be upon you. But Jesus also says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring division. What in the world are we supposed to do with that? Well, if you read prior to that passage and you read after that passage, you'll see what Jesus is upset about is the same thing that God the Father, God the Creator is upset about in Isaiah. It's that the people of God are only concerned about themselves and not concerned about anybody else. The common good is not important. It's only our own self-interest that is important. That's what Jesus is afraid of. And, and the thing with the fire, too many preachers have preached that that's not going to hell. That's wrong. When you see fire in the Bible, it's about refining, and it's about the Spirit of God. So the method symbol is a cross and a plane, which I think is really a bad idea in the context of the time. Think about like not knowing your time. But the flame represents purification, refining of things. And so we do our best, right? Like 1 Corinthians talks about on the day of judgment, all of the deeds that we do will be passed through the fire, and the things that have been done with good and pure intent for other people will come out on the other side, and that will be our reward. The judgment looks like, hey, here's your reward. You've done good with these things, here's your reward. And the things that we've screwed up royally, that that we've done for our own self-interest, it just gets burned up and it's gone. But here's your reward. And what we want is a bigger reward because then Paul writes that you take that reward and you lay it down at the feet of Jesus. And we want to honor Jesus with the best that we can. And all of that sounds like me saying, so go do good, do more, do more, do more, and and a lot of you already do, in fact, all of us do. I wish there was a way that I could make you understand that your life is ministry, whether you are a pastor, or a third grader, or a third grade teacher, construction worker, or a bank teller, a carpenter, an engineer, whatever your job happens to be, you are doing ministry. If you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, your life is ministry. It's all an opportunity to give the best of ourselves to other people for the common good. And it's refined. God takes our best as flawed as it is and refines it and makes it perfect so yes God's heart breaks when we as the vine are producing bad fruit because it's our choice to do that but God rejoices anytime we try just a little bit and it's in the trying and the seeing of things changing we find joy. Joy is the flip side of justice. Justice is hard and it's scary. And joy is like confidence is the right thing. When I was a kid, sometimes my teachers would tell me, I'm going to call your mom. Not a whole lot, but sometimes. And one time, the teacher called my mom. And because I had said a bad word in school, that's, I'll just own it, I'll admit, I'll admit I'll right? Death and resurrection. And so um, we were playing a game, typing game, learning how to type, and I got really frustrated and I lost and I, I said a bad word. And the teacher called my mom and I remember my mom saying, don't let me be surprised. Anymore. If your teacher tells you she's calling or he's calling, tell me. And that way I know what's coming and I'm not surprised. And I just kind of held on to that didn't always do it. all will own that. Like i just I gambled. Like, you know, maybe they're not going to actually do it. And so you know, I had a job right after high school. Right when track season ended, my senior year, I took a job as a pizza delivery guy. And I decided I was going to quit about the fifth time that I rang a doorbell, and a kid goes, pizza boy is here. And I'm like, no, I'm a man. I'm a pizza man. You know? And so uh, I decided to get a job that allowed me to hunt for dignity. To and I got a job working at the airport in Carlsbad, New Mexico, refueling airplanes. And it turned into this little miniature career for me because when I moved here, I did it here also for a while. And uh, one day Gary Johnson, Governor Gary Johnson, flew in, in the state's plane, and the governor flies around the state in. And he had flown in enough that like he knew my name, so he'd get off the plane. He was like, Hey Ross, how's it going? And I'm like, that's the You know, like I was all excited. <laughs> and so he, he comes down off the plane, I shake his hand, his pilot comes and says, I need you to put so many pounds of jet fuel in this plane. And I quickly did the calculation in my head to how many gallons that uh, relates to. And then I drove off, did some other things, and came back. And as I'm refueling the plane, I'm finishing it up, I realized I forgot how much they said. And I realized I had talked the thing off. It was cool was July, and jet fuel expands and gets heavier in heat. So I went into the office, and uh, I, <laughs> I just presented the ticket to the pilot, and he's like, that's way too much fuel. We're not going to be able to take off. And I was like, the governor of the state of New Mexico is not going to be able to take off because I'm a goofball, and got distracted. I know, it's hard to imagine. And <laughs> signs the ticket. He's like, "We're gonna figure this out." And about that time, the owner of, essentially the owner of the airport, walks in. He was a state representative, and I was like, "Mr. Carroll, I got some bad news." And my mom's voice was in the back of my head: "Don't let me be surprised." So I walked up to him. And I was like, "I don't want you to be surprised." I made a big mistake. This is what happened. And he's like, "Let me go talk to the pilots. They worked it all out." And he came back and he said, uh, "If you hadn't told me, I would have fired you." And I walked out with my head high and my shoulders back like I did the right thing. I screwed up, but I own it. Death and resurrection. That's how we, like, I'm not the hero of that story, right? I'm not trying to make myself out to be the hero. But that's how we live our lives. We recognize we have to be aware we can't be like the people who say, Oh, there are clouds over the organs, it's going to rain this afternoon. Oh, it's July and August, it's monsoon season. Like, we recognize what's happening, but we don't see what's happening. We can see the weather, but we can't see what's happening in an interpersonal relationships And the harm that we've done and that we do, the fruit that we produce that isn't sweet, that is sour. And so we own it, and when we recognize the sour fruit, we confess it. And it's in that confession, the resurrection happens, and we find hope and joy. And it is scary. (coughs) Because I figured I was going to get fired that day. But I decided I'm gonna do the right thing regardless of what happens. I should have been fired, but... grace. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as if they were on dry land. By faith, Jericho's walls fell after the people marched around them for seven days. By faith, these things happened. Not by certainty. By trusting that if they took the step into the water, they would part. By trusting that if they put the trumpet to their mouths, eventually the walls would fall. By faith, there has to be a little bit of doubt because it's just pure craziness to think the waters are going to part or the walls are going to fall.